Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. Today's guest, Reed Smith, is another person that I had on my hit list before starting up the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. He's an absolute curriculum genius and I really value his thoughts and opinions on all things to do with knowledge building. In this episode, we talk about what schools and individuals can do to develop a knowledge-rich curriculum and why it's so important. I was also keen to ask him about Oka education and how it all came about. So, here is my conversation with Reed Smith. Really excited to be chatting to Reed Smith today. Reed, can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? Oh, thanks, Brendan. It's really uh, fantastic to be chatting to you today. It's interesting, actually. Um, I come from a chalky family, so both my parents are teachers and they've taught for a long time in rural and remote areas. So really, it's in my blood to some degree. I, um, I grew up in Menangatang, which is this tiny little town um, in the valley, 400 people and uh, spread over a wide range of areas, as you can imagine, for a farming community. And then finished off my secondary education in Ararat, which is in the Wimmera, about 9,000 people. So really, yeah. the teaching and learning is something that, that I've been exposed to every day. Your, your downtime is in the staff room while my parents are in meetings or they're having a, a chat on a Friday afternoon. So you're really getting culturated into this teaching and learning game. Um, but I, I probably, early on, I tried to move away from that a little bit at the university choices. So I headed off to to study biomedical science at Monash University and worked for a very short time as a, a researcher um, before deciding that that semi-solo lifestyle probably wasn't one for me. So um, I, I decided to, to tap back into my roots and get back into education. And I was really, really lucky to, to land as in, in one of my first jobs at Ballarat Clarendon College. And it's really, um, I, I I'm really thankful for the opportunities that they've given me and, and that that was the first school that I landed into because I was still quite an impressionable young bloke at that stage and, and hadn't really formed many thoughts and theories about teaching. Yes, uh, it's funny how you mentioned that you, you come from a family of educators. I, like My mum's also a, a teacher and I just spoke to Tom Sherrington on the previous episode and he's the same. His mum's also a teacher. So I should start taking notes and, and uh, seeing what the statistics are like on, on how many children uh, you know become teachers after their, their parents have been teachers as well. High correlation, I reckon. I reckon as well. <laughs> and, and, you know, like you mentioned, one of those things is that you, like everyone has some sort of idea on what school is like, you know, because we all go through school as students. Um, but when you, your parents are teachers or you, you, know, you have family members who are teachers, you get that deeper insight into like what actually goes on, you know, the, the nitty gritty stuff and, uh, you know, what happens in the staff room and the relationships that, um, and, you know, teachers are just people. Um, I think that's also what you quickly realise as well. Yeah, that's so true. It's, um, 
being the, the, the child of, of a couple of teachers, you, you see a number of things. I, I think you see the, the hard work that goes on outside of school and just the late nights, lesson planning, making sure that you're ready and raring to go, that it's not just a 9 to 3.30 job that maybe some people in the community may view it as. But the other thing is you see how much care that teachers have for their kids. Like we genuinely worry about the kids that are in our care. We're thinking about, oh, gee, the things haven't been going right for Brendan lately. I've, I've got to think about how I can reconnect or how am I going to help them with this particular concept? So that was modelled for me really early by my parents. Yeah, you know, and, and um, you, you mentioned that you kind of fell into a, a pretty sweet spot with your uh, one of your first teaching um, jobs being at Ballarat Clarendon College, but you know, have you have you faced many many challenges at all? Um, you know, in your teaching career, uh, there's challenges all the time, Brendan. I think that's partially that's what learning's all about is is having some of your ideas and thoughts about education challenged. And I, even the first moment I walked through the door at Clarendon, and their their relentless focus on teaching and learning, um, and how all the decisions that they make as a school community. And as a team of teachers, really is about what's best for learning for adults and for kids. Is, is something that I hadn't really even considered before. And also, the allied to that, the idea that we we as teachers work in teams, that that yeah. we do our best work collaborating with one another, making agreements about how we might go about things in the service really of the learning of our kids, is something that when I was at university was probably less about that collaborative aspect and that schools are teams of teachers working together with kids. And so even those really thing, those things that you think are really basic, for me, walking into a school was, was something that, that really challenged uh, my concept about teaching and learning and the way that I went about my work. And how did you adapt? Oh, well, pretty quickly because I realised that, um, first of all, I didn't know at all, uh, which which didn't take very long at all. And that these people, these colleagues that I had, they had so much to give to improve my practice. And particularly when we were looking at what students were able to know and, and do as a result of my teaching, I could see that in some other classrooms, kids in those classes knew things that my kids didn't know or could do things that my kids couldn't do. So I was really keen really to, to grab hold of the things that, that were in their brains, the teachers' brains, and, and put them into mine so that I could use some of their practices. So it didn't take very long for me really to realise that working in teams is a really great thing for teachers and that learning from others' expertise and having that visible to me was something that was going to value, be of value for the kids that are in my care. And, and really just the learning of, of students is what we're all in the game for, right, that, that we want our students to, to grow and develop over time. Yeah, you know, and fast-forwarding a little bit, You've now started to do a bit of research um, into the role of background knowledge in reading comprehension. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. With, and it was sparked um, by some of the work that Clarendon had been doing on its curriculum and um, led by Jan McClure and Greg Ashman. They introduced this idea of a knowledge-rich curriculum. And one of the ideas that underpinned that move to a knowledge-rich curriculum was that it would help some of our struggling readers um, that it would contribute to their reading comprehension and as we look back through the research and the links between knowledge and reading comprehension it was difficult to see a lot of um, reading research that that directly linked a knowledge building strategy in a classroom with improved reading comprehension outcomes so there was a theoretical link and and there were yeah. some other indirect links but there wasn't that direct link so that that's really what 
led me to start investigating this um, idea of having our background and knowledge or the knowledge stored in long-term memory by kids contributes to their reading comprehension and whether a knowledge building strategy, so a knowledge which curriculum would actually benefit them. Like, is this a plausible strategy for schools to undertake, given my school had just started on it? Um, and, and really, with the evidence that we had at the time, that, that looked like a, a pretty sound strategy, right? It was our best bet out of a number of different options. And it's continued to be that way as, as more and more research comes out through my own research or Sonia Cabell and others like that, that really show that knowledge building is a really a good strategy for kids to improve their reading. But not just that, really, it's, knowledge is a good thing, right? That kids should know a lot more about the world that they live in, its, it's past, its present and its future. It's, it's, it all contributes to kids being, um, kids developing into really valuable contributing members of our society. Yeah, you know, and, and for me, like, one of the, the things I've, I've been thinking about is it makes so much sense, you know, knowledge building on knowledge. And, and we already have a, a, a scope and sequence. We have a curriculum and, and syllabus and everything. And, and so why do you think we haven't really um, gone down this intentionality of building curriculum like this in the past? Yeah, I think it's um, partially, I think it's because to, to have a knowledge rich curriculum, you've got to make some pretty specific decisions about what knowledge you're going to include in the curriculum. And they are tough decisions that, that a school has to make because there's so much valuable knowledge and skill that you could teach kids, but you've got such a limited amount of time that you're working with them. So necessarily you have to actually decide, actively decide not to teach some yeah. knowledge or some skills that, that actually pretty much most of us would say, like it'd be pretty good if kids knew or were able to do these things. So you actually have to decide not to teach some things and so if that's that's a really difficult thing sometimes for a school to do with reference to their curriculum or syllabus. But I, I think once you raise it up to that level of a state or the Australian curriculum, then it becomes even more difficult because who gets to make those decisions about what's important, the stuff that goes into the curriculum and what's not important, the stuff that's left out, and yeah. what role does context play? So are the same things that are important to the kids in Ballarat that as important as those kids who are in um, in Sydney or um, up in the Kimberley. So are these things, how much similarity should there be between different schools or kids that are in different locations and how much difference? And so that I think that's made that conversation really difficult to start to pin things down to a level of specificity where you're starting to have these direct debates about who gets to decide the knowledge and does it matter that you've got kids in different contexts. And, and what's your current thinking on it? I think there's a, I actually think there's a middle ground to be taken here, Brendan. I think that there's, I, I think that with some will, we as, as a, a profession could probably come up with a, a core curriculum. It, it might be like, say 50% of the things that you teach as, as knowledge rich that every child has access to these particular concepts because we think it's important for, for us as people living in Australia that we, we know these things. And then there might be 50% of the curriculum that's more contextual that teachers have more of a, teachers that all schools have, have more of a, um, a sense of decision-making or involvement in the decision-making there on a school level or a classroom level. So I think that we can, there's a middle ground to be drawn, but I, I think that, I think at the moment a lot is left up to schools to mm. try and 
operationalise the national curriculum in their schools. So they decide what's it going to look like for us, how we're going to resource it. Like that's a really big job, particularly when you've got some schools that are really small, might only have two or three teachers in the entire school. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really tough one. And I, I like your idea of having that sort of 50-50 uh, where you're still leaving, you know, a bit of choice up to schools, but then also having a bit more direction from, you know, that national level, which I think is also needed. Um, you know, because as you know, you, you need so much content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge to actually be able to create, um, you know, systematically a curriculum that's going to work for our, our students. That's right. Well, particularly for, for those people who are teaching, teaching in primary. Like it is a massive job. You've got to teach so much. You've got to be across so much. And and it really is difficult to become a master in one domain, let alone trying to be a master in all of them. And anybody who thinks yeah. teaching um, preps ones or twos is, is a lot easier than teaching senior chemistry, well, I challenge them to spend a little bit of time in the classroom. The, the, the challenges look different in some ways. However, it is it is a really challenging environment and you have to think really carefully about your curriculum and your teaching and learning in that space. And and so just it, it can be an impossible mission if you have to do all of the curriculum work yourself. Yes, you know, so I guess moving into that sort of uh, teacher level, we all know that teachers are time poor. Um, you know, you've already mentioned how they can be poorly resourced at their own school and, and have uh, little ability to actually collaborate um, a lot of the times, especially in that, that primary level. So what can they do? I think that that's a, that's a huge challenge. I think that the first thing teachers might do is, is perhaps lose the idea that they have to build everything themselves. And I think um, it's not a healthy thing for us as a profession to believe that, that the primary role of teachers is curriculum developers. And, and perhaps to, to realise that it's actually okay to borrow curriculum from other places and other sources, right? It, it's not cheating for you to, say, pick up a series of OCA lessons or to go to core knowledge. There's, well, how many are there? There's Read to Learn, there's the Syntax Project, Engage New York, there's subject associations have um, resources and sets of lessons that they make available. And that's not even mentioning those commercial providers. So. There's a real opportunity, I think, for teachers to investigate how they might use blocks or sequences of lessons to help them, even if it's just in the short term. Um, I know that at Clarendon, we use the core knowledge curriculum um, for some parts of our units, particularly as we were developing our own uh, our knowledge, our own knowledge-rich curriculum. And the reason for that is you can't write everything at the same time. Like it's just even for a school of significant size like Clarendon is, you just can't write everything. So sometimes you just need something where you can say, you know what, for four weeks, based on our professional judgment, we, we think this unit would work really well with our kids. We could probably do some things to improve it, but it's we think it's good enough for, for the moment. And then that buys you, if you like, four weeks worth of time that you can then use to make alterations to other units or writing other curriculum or investigating other things. So I think for a time poor teacher, my number one message probably would be to look out there for maybe curriculum that already exists that, to help save you some time or even sets of resources. Yeah, really good point there. And I think it's it's probably one that we underestimate a bit is that it's really difficult to be doing the learning and the creating and the teaching all at the same time, uh, which right. is basically what we're asking uh, of teachers. 
That's right. Or even providing a model. So, so these these different curricula they provide the opportunity to look at schemes of work and see how a particular group of teachers or learning designers have put together sequences of lessons as a model for what might this look like when I'm designing curriculum. Because there's nothing more paralyzing, I reckon, than sitting down with a blank page and then thinking, well, okay, I've got to come up with four weeks' worth of lessons. Like it, it's, mm. it's something that's really tricky to do. And so I think that anything that can help that process is a good thing. Yeah, so what sort of advice do you have for people who are looking to develop a knowledge-rich curriculum? You know, what sort of things do we need to be including? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. But if, if, I was, if I was a school that was looking at a knowledge-rich curriculum, I think my starting point would be, what's the current state of play? So mm. what, do we, what do we teach right now? And, and I think taking time to invest um, in, in an audit of the, the current curriculum, what's being taught in our classrooms across the whole school. So it might be if you're a primary school, you might say, okay, well, what does our curriculum look like at prep one, two, three, four, five, six? What do we do at different times of the year? And that can just be even from the topic level, like what roughly what's the name of the topic ancient Rome, what, what, are, what are the kinds of things that kids do in that particular area? Because it's really interesting to collect that map together, particularly if you have different responses from different classrooms. Like you might have three year one classrooms and then each of those three teachers are doing something completely different. And then the question is, well, do we as a school actually have a, a curriculum or is it entirely dependent on the room that we're in? And mm. is that okay or is it not okay? It's just, like I don't um, different schools will come to different positions on that, but at least you can have the conversation. So I think as a school, I'd probably start at where are we currently at and what do we currently teach? And then probably from that map starting to identify what are the bits we want to keep and what are the bits that perhaps we can sacrifice and what's missing. So those three major questions about what's useful at the moment that we currently teach, we want to keep that in there. What's not particularly useful that we could probably take out and then the other part is, what are we not teaching that we think would be useful? And then just starting to play around with that map from a whole school sense. Um, for teachers who are doing it individually, it's probably a case of trying to bite off something really small, like a really small unit. And so it might be something that goes for a couple of weeks, might be between four and 10 lessons perhaps. And, and I think that the, the best ways to do it is is to start off with a big idea. I think Wiggins and McTighe, their framework, the unit design is a really good one. So starting off with that big idea that just helps to constrain the unit. I, it took me ages to realise why the big idea was worth it. I, I couldn't, I, I reckon it took me five years to really get what Wiggins and McTighe were going on about. I thought it was just a hoop that we had to go through. But then once yeah. I realised that we're moving from just doing something, you know, doing the Romans, doing Romeo and Juliet too. There's something we want kids to get out of this particular unit that's expressed by the big idea and that's a big leap. Like, you know, there's a difference between doing Romeo and Juliet and um, studying Romeo and Juliet as a product of the Renaissance movement, right? So having a big idea helps constrain the ideas and so not just anything goes into the unit. And then thinking about how you as a teacher know will know what the students know and can do as a result of the teaching. So how will you know that they've learned what it is that you're going to, you're planning to teach them and then blocking out each of those individual lessons. So 
So for the individual teacher, starting off with something small, like a unit, trying to come up with the big idea for that particular year. So what's the the constraining idea that's that's going to help um, place the unit in context? And then thinking about, well, what's it going to look like when the students have successfully learned what we've learned? And then working backwards from there um, to make sure that our lessons help the students achieve those goals that we think the unit um, is trying to achieve. Yeah, you know, and you start off with a couple of points, which they seem so obvious, you know, like work out what you're currently doing. But yeah. so many schools have actually no idea what is what is actually being taught in their classrooms. Um, you know, and then the second point there of, of knowing like what the actual purpose of that unit is mm-hmm. and knowing what the learning intentions are. Like, so these are things that seem obvious, but a lot of the times we, we seem to just kind of go from lesson to lesson, from class to class without really knowing what the purpose is and what is happening. Um, and it just makes it so hard when you are then trying to, uh, you know, replan or, or reorganise your curriculum to do it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's, I think you're, you're dead right in terms of knowing where the lessons or the units need to go because otherwise you're left just scrabbling for things that are just roughly related to whatever whatever topic you're working on. Like I can remember working on a, a unit for our year three kids in history. Um, it was the Vikings, right? So fantastic unit, but we hadn't really thought carefully about how that unit was going to be constructed and what the kids were getting out of it. And so really... I was I was planning at the last minute. I, I wasn't particularly well organised um, with that unit, and so I was dragging things in. Just anything to do with the ancient Vikings that was brought into the unit. I had Viking um, word finds. I had crosswords. I had all kinds of things because probably I didn't have a sense at the start of that unit about what it is that I wanted my kids to know and be able to do as a result of the unit. Because I wasn't clear about that lesson by lesson, it just meant as the unit went on, it became more of a conglomeration of what I could find or things that I yeah. was particularly interested in rather than something that was coherent and probably a bit more nutritious for the kids. Um, so it, it does sound like an obvious point, and I know people bang on about the learning intention or objective all the time, but it really has its place for focusing the teacher's attention as much as anything else on what is it that I'm planning for kids in this lesson and what's important and what's not important because you've only got a limited amount of time in that lesson to spend with kids. So it's your most limited resource time and you've got to use that really well. Yeah, you know, and I think it's when you're talking about building a knowledge-rich curriculum, I think where it's also important is that then you're able to see like how knowledge builds each year, you know, and and sequence that properly because otherwise what we see is is that you end up just repeating the same thing. So you might have a similar topic and sometimes it's important to you know retouch on topics that you've done before, but what is the difference between what you're doing in year four compared to what you've done in year two? Uh, you know, that's where I guess the, the thought needs to be put into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're just planning for your own classroom or your own unit level, you're just losing the power of the organisation. You've got this great organisation called the school where you've got kids for multiple years, hopefully in the same school, they you have the opportunity to talk between year levels. And so if you're not looking at things from that whole school perspective, you're losing, as you said, the opportunity to touch on topics again without repeating. Like in Ballarat, 
at our schools here, the average student would probably do something on the Eureka Rebellion every year through primary school and probably at least one year in high school. And a lot of the times those units are going to be pretty similar, right? They're going to be learning the same thing. And it's not a criticism of Ballarat schools because we had a similar thing in science where in years five, seven and eight, we had essentially exactly the same um, set of learning objectives for our particles unit for each of those year levels. But it's not until you zoom out a bit and say, well, what are the kids learning in year seven? What do we just need to retouch on in year eight and what can we expand upon? But that's where the power of having the kids in a particular school over multiple years, you can really start to to build knowledge in a really um, deliberate way rather than um, hoping that kids have had the opportunity to learn about particular topics or ideas. You can be sure that at least they've had the opportunity to learn some of these things in the past. And so you can build on that over time. Yeah, you know, it's it's really important because I think like sometimes, um, you know, with Rose and Shine's principles coming into play uh, and becoming quite popular recently, you know, we have a lot of talk around, um, you know, having a high success rate. And so sometimes we get caught in the trap of like looking for that that 80% of the class being successful without taking into account the fact that, you know, sometimes that learning and the knowledge building, it can take time. And so, you know, they might not fully get it now, um, but that's why we are going to, you know, retouch on it again in a couple of years or, uh, you know, use our retrieval practice strategies or whatever it is. Um, you know, what do you, how do you, how do you plan for that as a teacher? Well, usually you've got, Ideally, you've got things that are core knowledge and core skills that you really that that you would be hoping that the vast majority of, of kids in your class or in your year level uh, will have mastered and and know about by the end of the unit. And then there'll be certain things that you would be introducing, but you know that it's a complex idea or a set of concepts, or or it's it's a little bit peripheral to the main idea that you're studying, but you think that it's a valuable thing for some kids to have access to in the knowledge that you're right, it may be later in the year that you're coming back to some of these ideas, or it might be next year, or it might be in three years' time that you come back and then you say, remember you did some work in year seven around this. Well, we're going to build on that a bit as we read things fall apart um, in English at year 10. So there are, I think that there's some benefit in planning for the now, but Sometimes what that can lead to is you just, you, as a teacher, you're just pitching for the easy targets because you're thinking, oh, I don't think 80% of my mm. kids are going to get here. So what you do is you start cutting off some of the more complex ideas. And in actual fact, you should keep those in. There's just the reality that this this is not a done in four weeks kind of project for some of the kids. They're going to need more repetition, more exposure, and that might happen over the course of weeks, months, or even years. Um, and I think that whole school planning can assist in that because you, as a unit writer, as a teacher, you can see that, okay, we're studying this particular idea this year and the reason why this is important is because in two years' time they're going to be studying this particular aspect or they're going to be building on similar triangles when they're working with, um, when they're working with trigonometry. So I really want to make that link between the two now and, and knowing that I won't have 80% of the kids necessarily who've mastered that but I will have some of them that do, and it gives a common experience that then I can link back to later on. Yeah, you know, and, and so like we've, we've spoken at that, uh, you know, whole school level and, and unit development level, going down, you know, into that granular level of actually planning a lesson, what sorts of things can teachers be thinking about in order to support 
building background knowledge? Um, I think a couple of things. One is that we've, we've touched on it before is that idea of the learning intention, just being really clear about what it is that you're trying to do in the lesson, what your kids should know and be able to do as a result of the teaching that lesson. I think it's important to think carefully about the knowledge that kids are likely to come into the classroom with already. So what things may they have already learned in previous units or at school, what things may be in the media at the moment, so what what things can you build upon because you really you, you're trying to meet the kids at least to some degree where they're at and probably in terms of lesson design the other two things i'd say would be first of all making sure that you you chunk the lesson up um, sufficiently so one of the things that that is really common for teachers myself included is we probably overestimate the size of the chunks that we have students work with at a time. So breaking those ideas up into smaller pieces where, where it's applicable and then having them practice on that individual level or at least working with those ideas a little bit before moving on to the next one is really important for helping embed some of these ideas in long-term memory. And then uh, probably the last aspect is thinking about going back to the learning objective and, and thinking carefully about what is it that kids are actually doing in this lesson? So the things that the that kids will remember um, are the the things that they've been thinking about. So I think it's Willingham who said memory is uh, the residue of thought, right? That that the the kids will learn and store the things that they've been thinking about. So how is it that in the lesson you're directing kids' attention and their efforts to to the key ideas of the lesson and not other things. Um, and I think that that's, that's an interesting principle to consider and something that's worth going back through your lessons just to check what are kids actually doing? What am I expecting them to think about and how am I um, helping them engage with some of these ideas as we go along? Yeah, you know, so important to think about those as a teacher because a lot of the times we, um, you know, when we do plan our lesson, we just focus on what we're teaching, not necessarily yeah. what our students are thinking about at that time. Um, you know, and that I think we do need to, um, you know, distinguish between the two because they're, they're not always going to be related. Yeah, absolutely. I think and some of that comes into planning, right? Because it's it's really hard to make some of that judgment on the spot. And, and experienced teachers who've taught yeah. in an area for a long time, that you've just internalize a lot of this knowledge you've, you've seen a lot of different things and so you can turn as the americans say on a dump right like so you you can make changes you can say this is not working i need to try x or you've got all these things and you 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 can make those changes but for others where the cognitive load of managing the classroom with unfamiliar lessons or concepts is just so high that basically you're sticking to the plan the whole time and it's really difficult to come up with alternatives on the spot or change things until you have time to reflect at the end of the lesson. So by trying to front load some of that work going into the lesson, it's, it's a really useful thing to do um, just to help you manage what's going in, going on in the classroom, like as it's actually happening rather than afterwards. Yeah, you know, it's a really good point you make there. I think like one of the things I've um, realised especially over the last kind of 12 months or so is I've kind of, I've gone more into a uh, like an instructional leader type role Hmm. Um, and, you know, I understand the importance of explicit instruction and, uh, you know, teacher-led, especially at the start when we're trying to embed new uh, concepts. 
And what I found is that despite, you know, my experience and, and knowledge of all of this, when I've had to go into, you know, different classrooms, going across different year groups, mm. I've also realised how important it is to actually have that content knowledge in order to do it properly because you're, you're forever, um, you know, you're trying to take in all of this information of a, a class that isn't your regular class. And so you're trying to work out, is, is this working? Are they understanding? Um, and then you've also got to have, like you said, in your working memory, thinking about, well, what content am I teaching here? Um, you know, what what's coming up next? Uh, if, if this step is too big a step, how can I break that down further? And so you've got all of these things going on in your head. Uh, and yeah, to have that amount of knowledge, like you mentioned before, especially for a primary teacher, to have that amount of knowledge across all the different um, subject domains and different uh, year levels, it's really difficult. <laughs> it doesn't matter how experienced you are. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's a, it's a tough task. Teaching is just a really complex task, especially in mm. the moment. And sometimes we underestimate that, particularly when you see experts. I'm, I'm sure you've seen heaps in your role, Brendan, where you go in, the classroom proceeds smoothly, the kids are all doing the things that they're being asked to do, the transitions are seamless, and you just think this looks as easy as, you know, that, mm. like every classroom should be like this. But that's come after so much work and usually so much expertise that's been built over time um it, there's so much that sits underneath it and it's a really difficult thing teaching um and it's 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 underestimated all the time how complex it is it is complex and, and look one of the one of the uh, organizations that's helping teachers at the moment with that complexity is an organization called OCA, um which you just happened to to come up with, it, with along with uh caroline reed and and do you want to just kind of tell us a bit about you know how it came about originally it's it's the the origin story sits in two places or three places I guess really one is probably my experience as a student in regional remote areas and just um, some of the opportunities that we had to experience some of the things that that the metro kids who are of a similar age were studying like we just we had teachers who worked really hard and were really committed to their jobs and and I can't fault them at, at any stage for that. But I could see that for the school, it was really difficult to get specialists in certain areas and that you didn't have the opportunities to network or at that time, professional the, the access to professional learning for teachers was much more limited. So sort of a, um, my early experiences in, in regional and, and remote classrooms, just as a student, just showed me the importance of perhaps providing more support for teachers. What are ways that we can help schools that maybe don't have access to the same resources that some of the more metropolitan schools did? And then the other part was through COVID at home with my kids, like many teachers managing the household as well as teaching online. And just how startling the differences between the education provisions for different kids who lived on the same block on my street. Yeah. So uh, my kids were lucky enough to have their teachers on video calls and they had new work every day and they, they were in school really from um, about nine o'clock in the morning through to 3 p.m. And, and they just had that continuous aspect of learning. But for other kids in the, on the block, they received an a sheet and that, that was meant to get them through the week. And it's not the fault of the teachers that are involved, but rather like the amount of capacity and support that teachers have to be able to provide education for their kids. And so 
you know, there's this enormous disparity during that time, just purely depending on which school or which classroom you happen to attend as to how much support the teacher was in a, a position to give. And at that time in the UK, Oak National Academy had just started up. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Brendan, but it basically started as six or seven teachers. They were teaching classes during the day to their kids. They'd then record themselves teaching those same classes at night. And then on a Sunday night on the most rudimentary website of all time, they'd just plonk the, a week's worth of classes. And anyone could access these videos. And gradually, they, more and more teachers got involved with this project, adding um, their shoulders to the wheel, sort of the profession supporting the profession. And then they received some uh, funding from philanthropic sources and through the government. So they were able to expand their offer then to provide lesson resources and lesson videos for every lesson on the curriculum from our kindergarten foundation through year 10. Like a massive effort, teachers giving it their time, their expertise. Mm. And Caroline and I looked at that model and, and coming from our backgrounds of wanting equity and support um, for education so that teachers have the support that they need to be able to teach their kids, that kids, no matter where they happen to live, should have access to a great education. We felt this was a way of taking that expertise that we know sits primarily within schools in Australia and sharing it more equitably. We thought that there was a way that teachers could support others in the profession. And so we started up this, this not-for-profit OCA education. We had some early chats with OCA about how that might work or how they'd managed to involve teachers, practising teachers in their work, and then we built from there. And then, So we've, we've been lucky enough to have the, the support of the Australian Education Research Organisation, AERO, and we've done some work with them producing some lessons that are aligned with their tried and tested guides. We've done some work with Canberra Goulburn Catholic Education as part of their Catalyst project. But in all of these projects, it's, it's really about teachers who are willing to share their expertise with others. And they do that through videotaping their lessons and providing lesson resources that are adaptable for anyone to use in their own context, but providing those free, right? So there's no cost to the user or anything like that. Um, it's We feel that that's a more equitable way of being able to share the expertise that we see, see sitting in um, schools all over the country. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's such an awesome organisation and, and the resources that you're, you're putting out there to teachers, it's not just helping their workload, but I don't know if this is intentional, but it's also really helping their professional development as well in, in just seeing how... Um, you know, curriculum can be sequenced and then also looking at how a lesson can be sequenced as well and, uh, you know, and, and looking at that, that explicit instruction and, and what sort of things, you know, teachers might be talking about, how they can use examples and, you know, worked examples. Um, you know, have you been intentional with that? Yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. It's um, something, certainly in the uh, projects we've done with the Aero, that was part of the intention, really, to provide a model for what it might look like because it's so hard to conceptualise some of these um, ideas and terms that we use in the actual classrooms. So when we talk about formative assessment or checking for understanding or mastery learning, what does that look like in um, primary maths period three on a, on a Friday? What does that actually look like for me? And so the purpose of those lessons in that initial time was as a model for people to use. And we know that a, a lot of schools and a lot of teachers are using those, um, those lessons as models showing them in their professional learning 
um, sessions to say, what do you think about this? What sorts of things are similar to our practice or different? What might we take and use in our own practices? And certainly we've done some work with Aero where we produce some professional learning resources around that where some of the OCA teachers talked about the decisions that they'd made in, in creating some of these lessons. There's also, we also started to learn though that there's the, the lessons and the lesson materials like the daily reviews are really useful for teachers in terms of modelling and they're useful for workload reduction but there's, there's also something in the creation of those lessons as well that, that we think is is, is really important. So we have teams of teachers that come together and they collaborate on a unit of work. So they have to think carefully about the sequence of lessons. So how are we going to sequence these, these lessons? What representations are we going to use for, um, for different terms and ideas over the course of this lesson? They debate the, the sequence. So, so there's that macro level debate. But then we, we started to realise this. there's this real value in the artefact in learning. And I think um, Richard Elmore says that um, you learn to do the work by doing the work, not talking about the work. And I didn't really understand what that meant until I got to OCU and I started experiencing um, these meetings where teachers would be sitting, groups of teachers would be sitting down, they'd look at a, a sequence of learning, then they'd be discussing, say, a check for understanding question. And they're talking about check for understanding. But instead of it sitting at the abstract level where you say, oh, Brendan, what is check for understanding? And then you give an answer. And then are we all doing check for understanding? Yeah, we're all doing check for understanding. Instead, you're trying to design a question together on a common sequence of slides that you've worked through together. And it's, it's by having something to actually work on, whether it be a lesson, a question, a worksheet, or a daily review, or something like that, you actually build up your understanding because you're in the minutiae. You're, you're discussing the, the really fine elements that can get lost when your professional discussions just sit at that really abstract level. So I think that there's a lot of value in the learning of, or, or uh, being involved in OCA or similar types of professional collaborations where you've got groups of teachers coming together, sharing expertise, but actually working on a product or whether that be a lesson or something else. Um, because it helps refine your understanding. And a lot of teachers who've worked with us have said that it's amongst the best professional learning they've had. And mm. They've been able to go back to their schools even the next day. They've just had a, a meeting about something with Ochre and then they said, oh, the next day I went back to my team and then we popped some engagement icons in slides or we changed up the sequence of a couple of our lessons based on the conversation. And that's what, that's what we're hoping for, right? That the teachers engaged in these professional discussions, they improve not only their their personal knowledge and expertise, but then they can provide that knowledge and expertise to other teachers and in turn that affects the learning of the kids. So I think that that building of the collective capacity of us as a profession is a really important thing. And I think we have a lot to learn from other teachers. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think it's, um, you know, just really important as well when teachers are engaging with, with the OCA resources that, they don't just, you know, um, download a, a lesson or download a, a sequence of um, lessons and then open it up as soon as they enter a classroom because they're actually missing out on mm. what you're talking about there is that the learning from actually looking at the process um, that has been put together, looking at, um, you know, the terms that that have been used or the different examples. I think that's, that's where teachers can really gain 
um, a lot of really important professional learning from what you've put together. Um, otherwise, yeah, we're just going to kind of fall into that trap of, uh, you know, purchasing or, or downloading these resources and and then just not actually teaching it properly and we get that lethal mutation. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, that's why all of our resources are adaptable, right? Because we know that teachers will look at a lesson sequence or a particular lesson and there are things that you know that your students have been taught in the past and would work really well here or you've taught in previous lessons that are similar that you can slide into the sequence or you might chop things up in a different way. And also there's like there's nothing wrong with you as a teacher looking at lessons saying, you know what, I reckon that's pretty good. I, I'll use my professional judgment to say I'm going to use this lesson as written in my classroom. However, you'd, I'd like to think that people are doing that prior to going into the classroom, as you say, really just having a look through the lesson. How's it flowing? Okay, how does it fit? You might, we know some teachers then watch the video of the other, of the teacher who created that lesson, just explaining yeah. a little section because they particularly bad a field or new teachers. They might want a quick explanation of, well, how, how do I talk about this with the kids so that they can see a model of that? And then when they come into the classroom, they feel well prepared. They've got um, this lesson that they've already thought carefully about before they get into the lesson. And so the cognitive load for them is lower and they're just a little bit more able to deal with the comings and goings and um, the, not chaos, but the, the unexpected events that happen in classrooms when you need to respond to some of the formative information that you're getting back from kids. Yeah, you know, for those that haven't engaged with any of OCA's resources, can you just kind of explain, um, you know, some of the key things that you've you've made sure are included in the resources? Yeah, it's a good question, Brendan. We, we start with a curriculum that's knowledge-rich and sequenced, and, and we have a group of curriculum uh, writers who think carefully about the curriculum, how it fits with the Australian curriculum and the state syllabus. So it's well worth checking some of those resources because they give the overview of the curriculum map, if you like, so how the units were designed to be put together. Then in each of the lessons, we have a number of different components and um, usually that consists of a, a presentation slide deck that you can download and adjust. There's quizzes, so we call them the starter quizzes, which are essentially just um, either giving some formative information about key concepts that we hope that students would be using during that lesson or um, as retrieval practice for ideas that have come up in previous lessons. And then and we call it an exit quiz, but it's really just a, a formative assessment check on some of the key skills and knowledge that students should know as a result of that lessons. And they're just Google Forms, so you can import those into your Google Classrooms or download them as PDFs. And then there's a, a video of the teachers of the teacher who wrote that lesson, usually, teaching that lesson to students. So you can see how the lesson's designed to run and how they conceptualise the explanations at different points. And we know that there are some teachers who will put on the video at twice speed and quickly watch it in seven or eight minutes just to get an idea about how the lesson might run and then how yeah. thinking about how they might change it for their own practice. And then in addition to that, we provide this worksheet, which is just a series of learning activities to support the lesson. And then most recently, we've released some daily review decks, and they are lesson-by-lesson lesson, uh, decks for primary mathematics that are just designed to give students uh, some space to practice on key concepts and knowledge that they should have mastered by this point. 
And then we've organised those into both a, a master deck, which is a massive slide deck with all of the different slides per term, but also broken them up into lesson-sized decks that run for about 20 minutes. So the teachers can, can pick them up and make the adjustments that they need to for their particular class, but help save them some time. So we, what we're trying to do is put together a, a, a suite of different things that teachers can choose from um, to integrate into their own practice. So you don't have to use everything, all parts of a lesson or anything like that. Teachers will use their professional judgment to select particular things that they think is useful for them and their kids. Yeah, uh, I think it's also really clear as well when you look at your slide decks, how much you've taken into account, you know, cognitive load theory and, and reducing that extraneous load. Do you want to talk to that as well? It's, a, it's an important aspect of the presentation of the slide decks and, and cognitive load because sometimes I know that in some of the slides that I've built before, I really became aware of cognitive load theory and it became something that was really important um, for us to consider. I've built some slide decks that are just horrendous. I'd loved gifts. I'd have um, Roadrunner doing things in the corner of a slide. And, <laughs> have to, and, and one of the considerations was, was always, Jesus, is this an interesting slide? So my consideration at the time was, is this a slide that's interesting enough to keep my kids occupied? So word art and things like that were pretty important considerations and different animations. But as we learn more about cognitive load theory, we realised that the attention is a really finite um, resource and that kids need help sometimes in directing their attention and so we can build our slide decks create them in in such a way that we can really help focus that attention so the the design of those decks really we're aiming for engagement icons so there are symbols that are used that kids can and teachers can readily identify and they know what they are supposed to do whether it's a turn to talk or it's a think pair share activity or it's a choral response so they they have those visual cues. We try to keep the distracting elements to a minimum. So you'll see that most of the slides have a white background, large font. Um, and we've also considered accessibility requirements, right? So thinking carefully about how we use our transitions to direct attention, but also our color choices, the way that we use text, making sure we use fonts that help kids who um, have attention deficits or um, find it hard to visually discriminate things. So the, the design of the decks really is it's trying to be there to help focus kids' attention on the things that are most important. And also, if teachers wanted to add other little bits and pieces, this we're more on the blank canvas end than on the other end where teachers would have to take things off the slide in order um, for them to, to use and integrate into their current materials. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really impressive. And I, and I think it's quite obvious when you look at it as well that um, a lot of thought and consideration has gone into that that development, um, you know, and just such an important model for teachers as well. You know, like when we keep talking about how um, teachers can use these resources, this is just another way that they can kind of um, build off it as well. Um, you know, so... Looking ahead, what, what's the end goal for OCA? What, what are the kind of um, you know plans over the next couple of years, and uh, where would you like to to get to? Well, look, we're we're out, Brendan, to, to provide support for every teacher that we can. So that's really, and, and through every teacher, every child. Like we 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 would like eventually to be able to offer some lesson resources for every subject for every level, particularly from 
foundation through to year 10. We, we certainly think that's possible. We know it's possible because of the Oak National model in the UK. And we think that every subject area and teachers, every teacher deserves support. And, this, and we think that there's this fantastic willingness from teachers all over the, the country to come together and contribute to, to the profession, the workings of other teachers and to share the things that they know. So we, we definitely know it's possible on a scale side. We know that teachers are, are hungry to share their expertise. We have emails all the time from people who are saying, um, when are you doing French? Because I've been thinking about how French might work and I'm really keen <laughs> to do some work in that area. Or food tech, we yeah. had someone from food technology the other day who said, look, I've been using some of your slide designs, but can I show you what I've done so far? And when are you going to move into that technology side of things? So so really that's that's our focus is to continue to work with practising teachers and we'd like to provide support in the widest range of subject areas as possible, at least as a starting point for teachers to consider in their lesson planning. So they've got something to work with if they choose, something that would be suitable for their kids. Yeah, that sounds really great. And I uh, certainly look forward to seeing all the, the great things that you put together. Um, you know, what sort of challenges have you faced as an organisation? And it's, it's, it's not a unique organisation, but it's, it's an unusual one. Probably because we've got teachers coming from all different contexts, all different states and territories, that's one of the enormous strengths of the organisation because you've got expertise in such a wide variety of areas. But it's also one of the greatest challenges because you've got people who have um, different experiences there. The things that they've taught in the past are going to be different. So even though there are some similarities between different states and territories, there's still differences. And probably the fact that you're working with groups of teachers um, mostly remotely. So because we we communicate through Zoom meetings and, and um, video conferencing and things like that, there's there's a real challenge in, in building that that sense of common understanding. So really, we provide a lot of support to teachers through the training process. So we have a training program where we where we try to indicate that this is what a, we think a good OCA lesson would look like and these are the sorts of things that you could do to um, create one of these lessons, but also support during the process because we know it's different to being in a school, right, Brendan, where you can pop into... Um, the staff room, and you can have a, a bit of a yarn with somebody and you can pick up on how they're feeling at the moment or you can just have incidental conversations about things. Like it just has, it just requires a little bit more planning in terms of um, a subject lead who's working with a group of teachers to reach out to teachers and just having a chat. You don't have those incidental contacts that both help share knowledge but also build a sense of team. So probably the the fact that we have a, a wide variety of experiences, plus the fact that we um, we work remotely and at at different times, is, is something that's challenging. But I think it's been so far it's been a really rewarding project. I've, I've learnt so much, and, and teachers are for, who are part of this project are forever saying, "I spend almost as much time stealing slide ideas from other people and putting them into my personal decks as I do yeah. lessons." <laughs> I, and I do it all the time, where I'll read through a deck and I'll think. Geez, I'm going to teach that on Monday. That's a brilliant idea. Never thought about doing it. So um, just being able to harness that expertise is something that's been just so rewarding and so enjoyable. Yeah, and so, you know, you talk, you spoke about how you've kind of struggled a little bit with the relationship side of things because people aren't there face-to-face. -face. How have you kind of made sure that 
know, people are okay with receiving feedback and giving feedback and, um, you know, in without developing those strong relationships? Well, we think that we can develop relationships to some degree through that our, um, our training process because you, you start to have a shared experience and those common experiences are really important. And because yep. we work with, we work with, value-driven people like teachers in general are values-driven people like they come to the work of teaching not because of massive salaries or holidays and that sort of stuff it's because they want to contribute to the learning of kids and it's just like that with oka like we have people who want to work with us because they're values-driven people they want to contribute to something that's bigger than themselves and so straight away that that's a link so that helps bind yeah that that helps bind our our crew together um and so we feel that that's a, a way that we can really um, work together. But the other thing that's that's helpful is when you have there are opportunities all the time where okay people they just catch up or they continue their collaborations with other members of the team after you've finished the okay project. So, for example, research Ed in Ballarat was on just a couple of days ago, and there would have been uh, about a dozen okay teachers who attended, and they taking photos with each other and having a chat. I never met him 3D before, but now here they are. They, they are having a talk together. They're reminiscing about things. So there are ways in which to build community. But as you say, feedback is a fraught area because some of us have been lucky to have feedback that's been given in a really positive and supportive environment where the purpose of the feedback is to support us and get better and we understand that even when the feedback maybe not what we wanted to hear at least you've got that general background but yeah. not all teachers have come from that environment where some people have come from environments where feedback's been used a little bit more as a weapon like to and, and they see that as being something that's hurtful so really what we try to do is to front load the fact that first of all we're all here to support you and that the first lesson that you create with us there's probably going to be a lot of feedback but that's because you're just learning and everybody has that experience and I guess the fact that our subject leads often started as teachers in OCA, so they, they started working with us um, as, as teachers and, and they understand the process and they're able to say, look, my first lesson, I had this feedback. And, and we talk it through. So we actually, as well as providing um, the written feedback, we, we're really conscious to highlight the things that we really value, the things that we think are excellent, the things that we think show expertise, in our meetings where we get the little teams together to chat through how things are going, we'll share examples of really good practice because we want to emphasise that, the things that are going right, but also helping our teachers to understand that there are things that we're asking them to change or here's some feedback, but it's all, the all in the interest of you as a teacher having stronger practice and also in the interest of the lessons that you're creating, probably um, being a little bit stronger than you may have created before. And then teachers see by the time that they've created their third or fourth lesson that they've internalised that, that um, it's become a positive process. So, so you're right, feedback can be a fraught um, process and, and we've thought a lot about how we provide that feedback and how we share good examples and celebrate the work that's been done by people in the team because it can be quite challenging, particularly when it comes from somebody that you've never met physically before. Yeah, you know, really good point there about... Um highlighting the good things that are happening as well you know some it can be really easy just to point out those things that um, need to be fixed especially you know when you've got a short period of time um, to offer that feedback and and you want everything to be actionable 
Um, but yeah, to to intentionally go after those good things, it doesn't really matter who you are, um, and how confident you are in your own ability as a teacher. It still feels nice to have those you know reaffirming comments about what you are doing right as well. Yeah. Um, what do? You, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I think you're dead right. I think that um, sometimes it's, um, and I've done this probably in my leadership role at, at school sometimes before, you've got 56 things on your plate. And so you're thinking, okay, I've just got to, I've got to get through these things. And then yeah. sometimes you're just going to slow down, don't you? But you'd know as an instructional coach just how you're thinking about the person on the other side of the fence. You know, I know that I don't think their instruction is rubbish. Like I, I think that they're really good and here's, two or three small things that they might be able to do just to sharpen up things. That's not necessarily the message that someone else would would receive. They can't see in my head and get an idea mm. about um, the, my opinion and their instructions. So I've got to make that as explicit as possible. But these are the things that are going really, really well. Here are some things that I was thinking about, you know, that, that we might be able to do differently. So yes, um, those positive reinforcements are really important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what do you say to people who are against using externally developed resources? Well, I'm just not, I'm not sure necessarily what the argument is um, because sometimes, often the people who, who are making the, the comments, they advocate for parts of lessons or lesson activities or elements that they say teachers should be choosing from. So often it's couched as teachers are using their professional judgment to be able to select from these materials and then put together a lesson. And that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that comes across as being an accusation that the teachers are abrogating their responsibilities as professionals if they were to pick up something that was more complete. But I think that my view is that teachers have expertise and teachers have expertise when they want to go and assemble and create a lesson from a variety of different materials, like they show expertise in that, but they also show expertise when they see a well-constructed lesson and they say to themselves, you know what, that, that would suit my kids. And then mm. I make a professional decision based on my expertise that this lesson would actually be um, right for my kids. And probably the other thing that I'd say, and it annoys me a little bit, is that sometimes the voices of those who are against taking larger sections of lessons or using materials that are um, created by others is that often they're people with great expertise that have built their expertise over time and they have a really loud voice in the space, but we don't hear from teachers who are out of field teachers and we don't hear yeah. the voices of early career teachers. We hear them because we have people that send us communications to say, I mean, my first year of teaching, I'm teaching year four for the first time and I was given um, one A4 binder with some black and white masters and that was it for the whole course. And I, I didn't know what I was doing, but thank you because you're helpful. So, and, and these voices sometimes don't have volume because there's this implied accusation that they are unprofessional. They are unprofessional out-of-field teachers or unprofessional early career teachers because yeah. they're choosing to use um, materials that are produced by OCA, Read to Learn, Syntax Project or core knowledge or they might be by style or edge roller or any of those other commercial providers you know what they i think that they're there to be used i think that teachers can use their expertise to choose to use some of them parts of them none of them that's up to them but i certainly don't think that 
I don't think it's a legitimate argument that it, teacher expertise only exists when you're dealing with parts of a lesson or preferred um, providers, if you like, other um, third parties, and not for just taking a, a lesson or a sequence of lessons um, on a larger scale. Yeah, it's a really good point you make there about how sometimes we don't hear from those, um, you know, quieter voices, you know, the early career teachers or, uh, you know, the, the people who do actually want and need these sorts of resources. And I think like what's really important here is that as teachers, we just kind of put our own personal egos to the mm. side and, and un understand like what we're trying to do here. It's for the greater good of, of all our students. It's not just what is suitable for you at your level of expertise and experience. Um, but what might actually benefit more students at your school? Because, you know, sometimes, yeah, maybe what, what that teacher is doing is great, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean what the, the teacher next door is doing is great, and they might actually need the support that, um, you know, organisations like OCA are able to offer. Um, look, it's been a, a really enjoyable conversation today. I love talking about all things to do with curriculum and, and you know, getting just getting into those real nuances of, of lesson planning and, um, what we need to think about as teachers, but um, yeah, it's called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So I'd just love to know what what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? Sure, that's an interesting question. Um, I think a, a really good starting point for teachers really is um, Rose and Chance principles of instruction. I think cognitive load theory as um, as a concept as well as something that's that's really worth teachers knowing about. And, and it's because it's not necessarily something that's covered too much in um, in university courses or placements, and and it's so I think it's it pays back hundreds folds in terms of your um, your classroom practice and and also ideas around sort of explicit instruction, so um, EDI and, and models frameworks like that 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 I think would be useful for teachers to know about. Um, they they'd be the big re recommendations, and, and for our school, they are some of the first readings that that we have are about cognitive load theory, Rose and John's principles of instruction, those those sorts of ideas, because sometimes they are foreign to people, and they underpin a lot of good instruction. Yeah, there are they're definitely keys to to effective teaching. Uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't really get exposed to them at initial teacher education because imagine how much more effective we could be if, if that's what we're learning um, at university. Um, Reid, look, I know that you're you're very busy and you're always, you know, doing different projects and presenting at different conferences. But so what can people do to get in touch with you or uh, how should they, um, you know, what, what sort of things should they be looking out for you from you uh, in the future? Oh, well, we're just continuing to motor along at Oka Education. Working with, with teachers to support other teachers. So have a look at oka.org.au um, for some of our downloadable and editable resources. Um, they, there might be some things that, that would be useful for, for teachers um, if they have a, a look there. I can be contacted through the contact page there. I'm on Twitter at smithre5. Um, I'm also, as part of my uh, PhD work, through the Solar Lab at Trade Uni. There's some articles coming out in the, the near future, so keep an eye out for some of those. But um, always happy to have a chat, Brendan. Um, I can talk all day um, about curriculum and, and reading comprehension and knowledge. So um, more than happy to have a chat with anybody who wants to catch up with me and talk through uh, 
Facebook. So. Sounds great, Reid. I'll be uh, looking out for your, your research papers in the future and uh, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Brendan. One thing that really stood out to me about Reid was his reflective nature and how much thought he has put into curriculum development. Here are my key takeaways. Look out for curriculum resources that already exist so that you can build off them or to use while you create other resources. We need to know where we are currently at and what we teach right now before planning for where to next. When looking at the curriculum, what are the bits we want to keep? What can we sacrifice? And what do we think would be useful? For individual teachers looking to make changes, start small. Having a big idea helps constrain the other ideas and moves us from just getting our students to do things and focuses our attention on what we want them to be able to do and know by the end of the unit. You lose the power of the organisation when you just plan within your class rather than across the whole school. We need to know what the kids are actually doing, what are they thinking about and how am I helping them engage. He mentioned the quote from Richard Elmore, you learn to do the work by doing the work, not by talking about the work and related it to the importance of actually analysing real lesson plans rather than just asking general questions. Finally, he spoke about the importance of positive reinforcements when providing feedback to colleagues. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did and I've really appreciated all of the positive feedback and suggestions for future guests. In fact, Tenacious Cat actually requested I chat to Reed Smith two days after I interviewed him so it's good to know I'm talking to people that you want to hear from. Thank you to all who have helped spread the word about the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. I feel the knowledge and advice that my guests are offering would be beneficial for all educators, and it's only a good thing if they're listening in. But that's all from me for today. As always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now. <laughs>